The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. this message epic failure and it really is for Peter uh, you know the, the great failure of his life and uh, you, you wonder how this could happen uh, Jesus changed Peter's name from Cephas to Peter and said upon this rock I will build my church and while the rock that the church is built on is Jesus one of the key leaders that built the church was Peter and, and Jesus identified Peter as a man having a future upon which uh, the church would move forward. Um, Just hours before this, as they had the Last Supper, Peter had pledged that he would go to prison and even would die with Jesus. Right? And even moments before this, just right at the time of his arrest, uh, Peter had attacked one of the temple guards, cut off his ear, a very brave, courageous, and bold move to protect Jesus. Uh, although somewhat misguided. Right? Um, but then in an instant, just moments later, um, Peter is claiming with great vig- vigor that he does not know who Jesus is, uh, that he has swear that he has never met him. And you just got to wonder, what happened with Peter? Right? What happened that he could walk into such an epic failure in his life? To deny his best friend. And uh, not only what happened to Peter, but can it happen to us? Has it happened to us, right? Is it possible for us to come to a place of just epic failure where we let Christ down in such a huge way? That's what we want to look at this morning and, um, and look at what comes of Peter and what will come of us as we come in times of our life of, of failure, of disaster, and how perhaps we can help protect ourselves from it. Um, so let's jump in. Uh, it's a very familiar story. All four Gospels uh, have this account of Peter's denial of Jesus. Um, uh, the, the scene, Jesus has been arrested. And he's taken to the high priest's house. Luke uh, doesn't go into a lot of detail about the trials and um, he immediately following Judas's betrayal, he jumps into the story of Peter. And so Jesus has been taken into the house of the high priest, uh, but the scene, the focus really uh, zooms in on, on Peter, who's followed at a distance, uh, presumably a safe distance, and he finds himself in the courtyard right outside uh, the high priest's house where Jesus is being interrogated. It's night, it's cold outside apparently, and so some of the servants around in the courtyard build a, a fire and they gather around in a, in a tight circle and they warm themselves over the fire. And Peter comes into the fire. He sits down. He, he joins this very tight circle of people uh, to warm himself around the fire. And as he does, the light of the fire shines on his face. And sitting in this circle is a, um, a young servant girl. The word that's used here implies that she she could have been really quite young, maybe a teenager. Uh, She's sitting there, and it says that she looks intently. She examines Peter's face, and she she thinks, you know, I 
I think, I think this is one of Jesus' followers. And so she looks closer and she, she makes sure, and sure enough, she recognizes him as one of Jesus' followers. And she says to the, the crowd sitting there, this man was with him. This, this man was with Jesus. Right? And Peter denies it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Peter claims that he has no idea who Jesus is in this little circle of people. A little bit later, a couple others recognize him. Uh, one says, you, you are also one of them. You're one of the twelve. We recognize you as one who walked with that group. And again, Peter says, man, I am not. Right? Boldly refuses that that could be true. Then an hour later, a third person with even greater confidence says, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Right? Peter's speech gave him away. He had an accent that identified him as one of uh, from the north in Galilee. Surely you're one of Jesus' followers. You're one of his disciples. You're one of that band of people who followed Jesus around and was so devoted to him. Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Right? I have no idea what you're talking about. And immediately while he is speaking, the rooster crowed. And it was for Peter a huge monumental failure of his faith and his walk with Christ. Um, so what was the cause? Right? Anytime there's an epic failure and a, mo- a monumental crash, we want to know what the cause was. Just this last 28th of January, a couple weeks back, we marked the uh, 30th anniversary of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. And I realized, like, for some of you, you weren't even close to being born yet. Some of us, it's like recent history, right? Um, you remember that day when the Challenger was launched off the pad and was hurling through space with this uh, white trail, and all of a sudden, something went terribly wrong. And the whole thing exploded in this fiery ball, and the ship disintegrated into nothing, right? And uh, it was a horrible thing. And those who watched and who saw it were shocked that this could happen. And, of course, the question that came up immediately was, what was the cause of this? Right? What caused this? Well, that's what happens when there is a huge failure. And, and we can't help but ask the question, what was the cause of this? How could this happen to Peter? How could he go from one who's so bold for Jesus, so on fire, so following him with such devotion, to all of a sudden... Uh, deny that he even knows him. Well, certainly, uh, the cause behind this is, is, is fear, right? Peter is certainly fearful of being identified with Jesus. Um, and and, and, and Jesus, Peter's sitting just outside the building, and inside, Jesus is being fiercely interrogated by hostile enemies. And it's, from, from where Peter is sitting, it's clear that things are not going well. And we know from the other Gospels that even in in the high priest's house, Jesus is being beaten. And the guards are ridiculing him, mocking him, and striking him in the face and saying, prophesy and tell us who hit you. And they're scorning him. And so Peter's seeing what's going on, and he's seeing that things have shifted for Jesus, that things are not going well. So certainly there is some fear in in, in Peter that's behind this. Uh, But really, what is he afraid of? What is at the root of that fear? Uh, was, was perhaps Peter fearful of himself being arrested and treated this way? Well, there may have been some risk of that, but um, I don't really think that's what, what, what Peter is afraid of here. Uh, 
remember back in the garden, just, just minutes earlier, maybe a couple hours earlier, when Jesus was arrested, Peter had whacked off uh, the ear of one of the temple servants, temple guards, right? If they were going to arrest Peter, right, that was a perfect opportunity. But they weren't interested in Peter, right? They, they weren't even interested in being after he attacked uh, the servant. They were only interested in Jesus. And so they had ignored Peter and the disciples. And, and, and Peter really had no threat of being arrested. Uh, was somebody holding a, a knife to his throat saying, deny Jesus or die? No, nobody was threatening Peter. Nobody was threatened to harm him or even beat him up, right? Um, the first person who accosts him, and all four Gospels affirm this, was a servant girl, right? Was he fearful that she was going to jump on him and beat him up? I don't think so. Right? He was a tough fisherman, right? I don't think some teenage servant girl is a threat to him. So, so what is he so afraid of then? Well, Peter is unraveled by a teenage girl. Um, and ultimately, what he is afraid of is what she will think of him, right? What will this girl think about me if she knows I'm one of the close friends and followers of this guy who's on trial. See, up until this point, Jesus had been a popular figure. It had been cool to be affiliated and associated with Jesus because he was somewhat of a hero, a legend, a rock star. And while he had his enemies, uh, society as a whole uh, was flocking to Jesus. It was cool to be associated with Jesus. But all of a sudden now things are not looking so cool for Jesus. And he is on trial, and the most important leaders of, of, of the Jewish people are pronouncing him a bad guy, a criminal. Right? He was arrested and drug off as a thief, and he's being charged with crimes. And now he's no longer cool. He is being treated as really a, a loser. And so for Peter to now be associated with Jesus means that he too could be labeled a loser. And in that moment, as this teenage girl says to him, you're one of them. You're one of his followers. Uh, what, what the crowd, what she thought about Peter became vastly more important than his, his loyalty to his best friend. And he says, I don't even know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, certainly the fear of man is a force and a power that we all have to deal with. And we all probably recognize its influence in our life, right? Uh, you've all heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's the dumbest slogan ever, right? Because it's just not true. Sticks and stones hurt, but so do words. Uh, sometimes they can hurt uh, way worse. We've all felt the crushing blow of words spoken in ridicule, making fun of us, mocking us, uh, demeaning us. I remember uh, when I was in seventh grade, and, and it's too bad I don't have good pictures of when I was in seventh grade, because I really was just a total dork. I mean, there was nothing cool about me. Um, uh, and I had I'd been living on a farm, and, and I was a cowboy. So I was not a dork, but I was a cowboy dork, right? And... Uh, and 
where I, when I lived on the farm and in that community, being a cowboy was kind of cool, and, and you could get away with being a dorky cowboy in that culture. And I mean, I had the boots and the hat and the clothes and milk cows and smelled like one. Right. So my middle, middle of my seventh grade year, I moved to a, a very suburbanite community where uh, it was no longer cool to be a cowboy. But I show up on the first day of school myself, being kind of a dork and clueless, uh, in my cowboy boots and my jeans and still kind of smelling probably like a cow. And, uh, um, you know, where, where I was a dork before, before um, I wasn't too aware of it because I really didn't care. I wasn't aware of how girls thought of me. The seventh grade comes along and all of a sudden it became important what, what people thought of me, especially what girls thought of me. Right, so I get to school, and the first thing that happens is this group of seventh grade girls just start laughing at me. And they start making fun of the way I was dressed, and they start ridiculing me, and I just wanted to die. I just wanted to crawl under a rock and, and just become invisible, just invisible. Right? And, and that whole day, I'm just self-conscious of what a misfit I am. Right? And those words were painful, and they were crushing, and they wounded me. In fact, Later, when I was in, I think, ninth or 10th grade, I actually got mugged uh, by a gang on, on the streets in Pittsburgh. I'm telling you, those girls hurt worse, hurt worse than getting beat up by these guys, right? Because at least there's some dignity in getting beat up by a group of guys. Um, getting ambushed by a group of girls, seventh grade girls, was humiliating, right? Well, it matters what people think, Right? No matter how much we say it doesn't, the truth is there, is there is real pressure and power in in fitting in, in belonging, in being part of the group and not being labeled as one outside, one who doesn't fit, who uh, is an oddball or, worse yet, a lunatic or a nutcase. Right? And Peter felt the power of not belonging not fitting in, not being accepted. And so he feared being rejected by this girl, by this crowd, and he, he had to conform to their standard. Right? And that's the way the world works. There's huge pressure for us to conform to what the world says we should be and how we should live and what we should look like and what we should say. And if you don't see that, let's look around at the world today and... Everybody's expressing their opinion about what you should be to be an acceptable human being. And if you're not that, they will lash out against you. And it's, it's interesting, even, even in spite of that, there are nonconformists, right? There are those who refuse to bow to that pressure, and they say, no, I'm going to be a nonconformist. But I love it how all nonconformists are conformed to the nonconformist norm. You get that, right? right? I'm going to be a nonconformist like all the other nonconformists, right? Because if you're just a nonconformist like nobody else, you're just weird and you're rejected, right? Even by the nonconformists, right? That's the way it works. So, like Peter, we, we face this temptation. And I think increasingly so, as the, especially in the Western world, moves away from Christianity. And what society says you need to be to be acceptable and to be part of the group is. is is becoming uh, farther and farther away from what it means to be a Christian. Um, and so if we, 
you know, if we cave into this temptation to create an image for ourselves that is socially acceptable, and if, if, uh, if we are acceptable to society, then the, the bottom line is we will not be acceptable to God. Because right? God is the kingdom of light. This world is the kingdom of darkness. As Paul writes in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right? So the things of this world are hostile to God's ways. They do not submit to God's standards. And Paul says they cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the reality is we have a decision to make as Christians. If we're going to care what people think about us and shape who we are in line with the world standard, or we're going to be weird, we're going to be outcasts, we're going to be mocked and ridiculed as oddballs, or attacked uh, hostily as those who are the enemy of the world system. Well, under that pressure, Jesus, in order to save face with the crowd, denies Jesus. And in that moment, he turns his back on Jesus, who had been his friend. Um, and he turns his, his face away from Jesus. And, and uh, the word denial here really has the idea of a refusal to be his follower, a rejection of Jesus as a friend an unwillingness to be a witness to his teachings and to his life. And so it is, it is in essence, an abandonment of Jesus. Right? Peter had been a disciple, a follower of Christ, and he's now saying, no, I am not a follower. I am not going his way. I am rejecting and breaking off my friendship and relationship with him. And you can imagine, you know, it's Valentine's Day and we're celebrating love and and uh, affection and, and people who are special to us. Imagine, you know, your special Valentine if um, you didn't know they were standing behind you and somebody comes up and goes, starts teasing you, oh, I hear so-and-so is your Valentine. I bet you got her some flowers. And you go, I don't even know who she is. Right? And she's right behind you and you turn around and there she is. What, what have you just done to that relationship? Wow, you have driven a huge wedge through it, right? And that's what Peter did in his relationship with Jesus. Uh, he says, I don't want to know you. I don't want to be affiliated or associated with you. I want to distance myself from you. Right? And in so doing that, Peter shows himself to be incredibly unworthy of that relationship. So what does Jesus think in the midst of all this? Well, it says in verse 6, it says that as this is happening, right, um, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Luke's the only one who records this, but it is powerful, right? It is powerful. And uh, the house probably was not that big, and apparently Jesus was not that far away from where Peter was sitting. And even though he was inside, uh, of course, no glass windows, uh, there were openings, there were doors, and, 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 and Jesus at that moment turns, bodily, physically turns away from the trial, away from what's going on, and he looks face on at Peter. Um, while the crow of the rooster is still echoing off the walls of the courtyard. And Peter makes eye contact with the Lord who he has just rejected and turned his back on. Now, if what Peter did is bad, 
what Jesus did is painfully worse, right? Uh, to look at Peter in the midst of his crime and to make eye contact with him as his words of rejection and, 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 and denial are still hanging in the air. But I want to notice a couple of things about Jesus and, and, as, and what Jesus is thinking as he turns and looks at Peter. The first thing that's just uh, remarkable to me is that uh, picture what's going on. Jesus is on trial for his very life. Jesus knows that he's about to go to the cross. He knows where this is ending. And they are, they are beginning to mock him and beat him. They're wrongly accusing him. And Jesus really has his hands full with what's going on in front of him. He is in the midst of his own huge crucible of fire. But in the midst of all that, Jesus is not just thinking about himself. Jesus is thinking about his followers his friends, his loved ones. His mind is not just on himself, even in the midst of all that's going on with Jesus and his suffering. He is still thinking about Peter. And he turns around to check on him. And we don't know, uh, and and it's interesting that uh, Luke uses the word here, the Lord, not just the Jesus term, but it says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And so it's not just Jesus in his humanity, but it's Jesus who is representative of God himself. And so we don't know if this is supernatural information that Jesus knew. This was the time when it came down. We don't know if it's because he heard the rooster crow and Jesus knew. Or it's very possible that that it was a small enough place that Jesus could overhear the conversation going on in the background. And maybe Jesus heard Peter say, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus heard it and as those words struck his heart, right? He turns and he looks at Peter. But what's significant is that Jesus is, is turning because he's, he's aware and he's concerned about what's going on uh, with Peter and with the others. He is not absorbed in his own problems. Um, but, the, but the question is, what, what was in this look? Right? As Jesus turns and looks and makes eye contact with Peter, what is in this look? What is the look that Jesus gives him? What does he communicate as he turns his face towards him? Um, And and as you think about this, as you think about Jesus turning to look at Peter, what's what's the first thing that comes to your mind that's in Jesus' look? Or put it this way, when you sin and when you you mess up, when you have epic failure and you feel the, the sense of God gazing down at you, what do you feel like is in that look? Um, yeah, we all we all know. We and if you're a parent, you all develop and practice that mom and dad look, right? There's that look that says that communicates about a gazillion things, you know. And they're all like, "You better stop. You're you're dead meat. You're in huge trouble," um, right? And, and we know we per, we perfect that. And as children, we 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 know that look. We know how to read it. When mom turns her gaze on us, we've been caught in the act. And we know we're in trouble. And the look says, you are in trouble, big trouble. And it's, it's a look that screams, right? Is that the look that Jesus turns on Peter? Well, our first instinct might be to think that, right? We might imagine that Jesus looks at Peter with great condemnation and judgment. Peter, how dare you betray me? Peter, how dare you do this to me? Don't you see what's happening to me? How can you abandon me now? 
Right? One of, of Jesus passing sentence on him who is truly unworthy of his, uh, of his love. Right? Or maybe you would imagine it's a look of disgust as, as Jesus looks at him and thinks, you are such a loser. Right? You, you think identifying with me as a loser, but you are a loser, Peter. How could I have ever imagined that you would be a leader of my church? And is that, is that the look that Jesus gave? And, you know, when you think about your own life and when you think about your own failures, how do you feel that God looks at you? Well, all too often I think that's what we feel. We have this idea that God is so disappointed with us and he uh, looks at us with condemnation, with judgment. And, of course, that is what we deserve. That is absolutely what Peter deserved. He just showed himself to be totally unworthy of of Jesus in every possible way. And certainly he deserved that look of judgment and condemnation and of disgust and of reviling. But that is not the the look Jesus gave. Jesus is on trial. He is hours away from going to the cross. And Jesus knows that the cross is about taking on himself the very disgust, the very revilement, the very rejection that Peter now deserves, right? That's why Jesus is going to the cross. And it's remarkable as Peter turns his back on Jesus as a friend, Jesus the Lord turns his face towards Peter as one who is so full of love for Peter that he's about to lay down his life for his friend, right? He says, I'm giving my life for you, Peter, because you are my friend. So what Jesus gives is the look of a faithful friend. Where Peter was unfaithful, Jesus showed himself to be a completely faithful friend who would never give up on Peter. He had already committed to pray for Peter in Luke 22, just a few verses before that. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, he knew he would fall. Strengthen your brothers. Right? Jesus had already committed to praying and to committing and to walking with Peter, knowing he would fail him. But he would not give up on him. Truly, Jesus is a friend like no other. Not like Peter, not like us. He's a friend who, made, who remained faithful to the end. But I do think there was also in Jesus' look something of a look of disappointment. Right? And as Jesus goes to the cross, he experiences suffering at every level. Right? The pain and torment of the cross was not only the nails and the whip and the beating, but it was also the suffering of being deserted by his friends, abandoned by those who had walked with him. Jesus feels the sorrow and disappointment of being failed by yet another friend. First Judas, the, the others flee. Peter follows, but now he denies Jesus. And it, it cannot help but hurt Jesus as the, the human person the man who experienced all that it was to be human. 
Hebrews explains it this way. For it was fitting, it was appropriate that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's necessary for Jesus to experience, to partake of everything that we partake of. So he had to experience the rejection and abandonment of friends because we all experience that. It's the effects of sin. But lastly, I think also in Jesus' look was the look of grace and hope. As, as, As Jesus loves him, as he's dying for him, and as the writer in Hebrews says, because Jesus took on our human flesh, because he experienced everything and partook of everything and suffered everything uh, in our place uh, and took on himself the pain of sin and death, he did that so that we could be set free, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be released from guilt and from judgment. And so... Jesus offers grace. He offers grace and the hope of forgiveness and peace with God and reconciliation. So while we have been unworthy of him in every way, Jesus is faithful to us and he offers us grace and forgiveness. Forgiveness. That no matter how much we have turned our back on him, there is grace. And that's what Jesus had preached all through his life. Uh, most significantly in the parable of the prodigal son, right? Um, the prodigal turns his back on his father. He rejects his father. He goes away and ruins the father's name. But when he comes into himself and he realizes he has no other place to turn, he goes back to his father. And he realizes his sin. But he knows that his father will accept him. And not only does his father accept him, but he restores him as a son. Peter is unworthy as a servant. He is unworthy as a son. He is unworthy as a friend. But through Jesus, he will be restored as a faithful servant, as a loyal son, as a dear friend. The passage ends this way. It says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then it says he went outside where he wept bitterly. Uh, what do we do with these words? What do we do with um, our failures? Right? How do we come before Jesus when we know we have failed him? Uh, well, it's interesting that... Uh, Peter is crushed by this, right? He is crushed by this. And as Jesus looks at him, what comes back to his mind is Jesus' very words, right? Before this night's over, you're going to deny me three times. Um, and, and they were a crushing blow to Peter, right? They were devastating because he was convinced when Jesus spoke those words, he was convinced he could not fail, 
Right? Remember, he said, Jesus, all the others will deny you, but I won't. Right? I'm going to stick with you to the end. I am determined. Right? He was convinced he was beyond this. He was certain that this kind of failure was not possible for him. And, and as he remembers those words, what comes back is the reality that Jesus knew him. Jesus knew his weakness. Jesus knew that he was not all that Peter thought he was. And it was a bit, it was a bit devastating for Peter. But there was also in it something very comforting in that memory. And here's the comfort. Because Jesus did, knew what, did know what would happen. And while Peter could not see it, and Jesus did, Jesus did not abandon Peter. Right? Peter goes, wow, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Long before it happened, Jesus already knew what I was going to do. He didn't kick me. He didn't boot me out of the group of disciples. He didn't scold me. He, he was my friend. Right? And so if Jesus knew that before and he was my friend, he's still my friend. Right? There was great comfort in those words. So if there was such comfort in it, why does he go out weeping bitterly? Well, I think for grace to have true effect in our life, there comes a point where we need to be wounded by grace. And uh, if Peter was ever wounded by grace, it was here. Right? As he realized really what a horrible person he was, how weak, how he had failed him, his, his friend, his savior, and he is overwhelmed with bitter tears as he's wounded by Jesus' very love and affection and by the grace that he offers. And I really believe that before we can truly be restored by grace, we do need to sense the wounding of grace. Um, before there can be forgiveness, there must be a wounding in our soul. Um, and the reason for that is we have to come to a point of true repentance, of confession, of sin. It can be no other way. And repentance is not a casual, indifferent, or detached admission of fault. Right? Rather, true repentance is stinging as we realized how we have failed one who loves us. And you see, if we have no concept of God's love, if we have no concept of Jesus' love, then it just becomes an a impersonal business transaction that I messed up and God came and he fixed it, but not because there's any love or affection on his part, because there's any friendship, because there's any relationship. But if we understand what God's love is, that he loves us, that he longs to be our father, he wants us to be his child. And we see how our sin has broken that relationship and it has rejected his love. And we have cast him aside and we have insulted him. Right? At that realization, sin becomes personal. Right? And repentance must be... Um, Felt. Now, I'm not saying you have to go out and weep bitterly as P Peter did, right? Uh, some of you are criers who cry at everything. You know, some of you won't cry. You've got your hand cut off. You know, you're just tough. Uh, but somewhere in your soul, right, you need to feel the sting and hurt of how we have wounded Jesus, how we have failed him. And there needs to be some impact of God's love that has overcome that.
Right? That's the wounding of grace. And otherwise, we could be like Judas, who was filled with remorse. Right? Judas also cried. But it was not the tears of repentance. He may have regretted what he did, but he didn't understand how what he did betrayed his relationship with Jesus and that Jesus still loved him and offered grace and forgiveness. So while he was sorrowful, there was no repentance that led to salvation, to conversion. But Peter is crushed by what he has done. And uh, he knows he's unworthy, but he sees the grace that God gives. Um, Now, let me say this. You know, some of us have made weeping over our sin a a career choice, right? Um, And and I used to be here, right? I used to feel so much guilt over my mistakes, right? And and, uh, I was dominated by that guilt. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? The, The wounding of grace is not ongoing. It's not something that bogs you down with the feeling of self condemnation and guilt. Uh, if you're in that place where you're constantly crying over your sins, where you're constantly feeling badgered, where you cannot come to a place of accepting and receiving forgiveness, uh, that, is not, that is not true repentance. And the problem with this is that uh, when, when, when we're in that place, we do not believe in the effectiveness of the cross. Right? We were not accepting what Jesus did to pay fully for the consequences of sin and its judgment. Right? So we're, we're, we're considering the cross inadequate when we hold on to guilt and beat ourselves up over and over and over again. Right? There, there is confession, but after confession, it's gone. Right? And there should be freedom and joy, not guilt and condemnation. So true repentance is brokenness, but it ends with joy when we know that Jesus has cleansed us and he's lifted off all of its guilt, all of its punishment, all of its judgment. And of course, there's the other extreme. Some people have kind of come to the awareness that, yeah, you can't be guilty all the time. And it's just, for one, it's just depressing, right? So they've kind of taken the approach that, well, yeah, Jesus just forgives, right? So sin's not a big deal, Right? And we, we take on this casual indifference towards sin. And so our confession, if it happens at all, is, is not heartfelt. It's flippant. It's shallow. Right? We take forgiveness for granted. It's like, yeah, Jesus, you know, that's what he did. He died on the cross, and yeah, my sins are forgiven. It's all good. Right? I think that also is a, is, a, is a great error because it makes grace cheap. And it makes God's love cheap, as if God's love is trivial like our love. Right? It, it fails to see both the, the, um, the significance of what sin has created in breaking our relationship and the price that Jesus paid to forgive it. Right? So we need, to, um, we need to be wounded by grace. And when we sin, uh, we need to sense something of Jesus' gaze upon us. But not a gaze of condemnation, a gaze of true love, a, a gaze that seeks to forgive 
and to restore. Let me just close with this last thought from Romans chapter 5. This is really the picture of the story. Uh, Peter had been a close, close friend of Jesus. In fact, Jesus identifies him within the inner circle, not just of the twelve, but of three. Right, So he was one of Jesus' closest friends. And for Peter, I'm telling you, Jesus was his best friend. You can't do better than this, right? Jesus, Peter cannot claim, well, I, you know, Jesus is a pretty good friend, but there's actually this other guy that's a better friend. Right? It's impossible, right? There's no friend like Jesus. Right? So, so that's the kind of relationship Peter had with Jesus. And, and that was the kind of friendship that Peter turned his back on. Right, in, in rejecting that friendship, in, in denying Jesus. But while he was turning his back on Jesus, at that very moment Jesus turned his face toward him. Right? So Paul expresses it this way in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at, that, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Such is the amazing love of God. Right? Such is the amazing friendship of Jesus, who no matter how many times we fail him, if we turn back to him, if we come to him, right, he loves us. He turns his face towards us. He forgives us. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.